Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. I will be reading from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Thank you for the reading of God's Word. Amen. You may be seated. So in most Christian churches today, any man that dares to get up and speak about the law of God, he's sure to be met with looks of bewilderment. For that same man to go beyond that, for him to teach that the saints are still bound to uphold that moral law, that's sure to cause trouble. There'll be whispers in the hall, maybe even some voices in the classroom crying out, somebody tell that man, we're under grace, not the law. Indeed, dear friends, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. No man has ever been justified by works of the law. This is the gospel that we proclaim. All of our hope, all of our needs, the whole of our salvation found in Christ Jesus our Lord. His perfect obedience exchanged for our outright rebellion. There's no level of righteous living. There's no amount of good works that a man can do to accomplish things like this. And to attempt to earn your salvation through the upholding of the law, it will not only prove to be absolutely pointless, it will only serve to add either further transgressions upon that which you hope to dissolve in the beginning. For a man to reject the grace of Jesus Christ and to insist on living as one under the law, this is to be subject to sin and death all the days of his life. But Christian, you must know that even for the blood-bought child of God, even for the disciple of Jesus Christ, there is still great purpose for the law of God in your life. Firstly, because the law is not some abstract ordinances. The law is not some arbitrary set of cosmic rules that God has given his creation. In the law of God, God is revealing himself. He is showing us something of his perfect nature. He is showing us something of his endless righteousness. He is showing us something of his infinite holiness. Dear friends, we love the law of God because in that law we see the God that we love. Secondly, we love the law of God because in it he reveals his will. It is by this law that he restricts evil in this world. The true Christian, he comes to the law of God not as a means of earning salvation, not as a battle in his flesh, but as God's rightful rule in our lives, as his instruction on how we're to walk in obedience. The Westminster Divines, they proved quite helpful in this. They wrote this long ago. The law of God is not contrary to the grace of the gospel, but rather it sweetly complies with it. The spirit of Christ, subduing and enabling the will of a man to do freely and cheerfully that which the will of God revealed in the law requireth be done. Church, you must know that the followers of Jesus Christ, the faithful disciples. They uphold the law of God in the power of God to the glory of God. At the same time, as we come up against this law in which we delight, as we join with David in crying out, O oh Lord, your law is a delight. I love the law of God. 
and yet seeing how far, how far short we fall. Seeing our utter inability to keep all of his decrees and all that he demands, it drives us to the point of seeing our absolute desperate need for a powerful and righteous savior. For the unregenerate, for the lost, they hear the decrees, they hear the precepts, they learn of the promise of punishment, and it only causes to increase their sin. They hear the law of God and like a toddler, they push back. They see no delight, they see no need of a savior in this. But for the born, those that have been born again, for those that have been awakened by the work of the Holy Spirit, they see their desperate need for salvation. They come to the same place, they feel the weight of the law, they feel the burden of their sin, and they see in Jesus Christ their only hope, and they come running to him, crying out with the psalmist, Lord, save me, for the waters are up to my neck. I've got nowhere else to turn. You must see this, that the law of God, it doesn't just serve as a rule of life for us. It doesn't just serve as a place that drives us to our desperate need for a savior. It makes our salvation all the more sweet. It drives our worship. It shows us the picture of true joy. It keeps the unfading holiness of God right before our eyes so that we can cry out then through tears of joy as we come into this place to worship, we can cry out, oh, what kind of a perfect God would love a wretch like me? How would a perfect God like this receive worship from unclean lips like this? Dear church, you must see this is the way in which God's people truly delight in the law. But for the religious establishment, for the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they did not see the law like this. They saw the law in purely external form. They didn't see the law as a thing that was driving them towards the desperate need of Jesus as their Lord and Savior. What they saw instead was Jesus Christ as a threat to the law that they loved. See, there were three major pillars for the Jewish people. There were these three hooks on which they hung their identity and their hopes. Number one, they were God's chosen people. Number two, they had the temple. And number three, they possessed the law of God. Now, Jesus had already spoken a curse. He acted out the curse with the cursing of the fig tree and its withering away. He had shown God's curse upon apostate Israel. And with regards to the temple and what it had become, he had cleaned the place out. And before this day was up, Jesus would speak explicitly about the destruction that was pending. But what about the law? He had spoken about the ordinances. He had spoken about the traditions of men. He had spoken about what a disgrace they were, what an offense they were to the living God. But how did he relate to the law of Moses? That surely was the question on everybody's mind. So as we find ourselves in this morning's text, we return to the 12th chapter of Mark's gospel. What we find here on this Holy Tuesday, we're about halfway through, by the way. We're about halfway through with this Tuesday of Holy Week in our studies, this day of constant instruction and constant conflict. But what we find here in this morning's text is Jesus providing great clarity that Jesus is a Jewish man coming to the Jewish people under the Jewish law. Jesus does not despise the law of Moses. He elevates it. He fulfills it. He shows us its deepest root and its meaning. He holds before us a beauty and a richness and a majesty that I'm afraid most of us have completely missed. So with that, I ask you to stand to your feet, please. Reverence of reading of God's word. We return to the 12th chapter of Mark's gospel. We're gonna begin in the 28th verse. This is the word of God. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, 
You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no one, no other besides him. And to love him with all our heart, and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, it is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus said, Jesus saw that he answered wisely and said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, we do not have it in our flesh to rightly comprehend and believe and trust in your precious word. So we pray this morning that you would put that flesh to death. Give us true eyes to see, true hearts to believe. Father, for we pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen. Verse 28 began like this. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. Now, scribes were those men that had dedicated themselves to handwriting over and over the law of God. This is tedious work. This was long before the days of computers. This was long before the days of word processors. These men had literally dedicated themselves, terrified that they might make an error, that they might err in their copying down of the word of God, that they might transpose even one little symbol. And so they were constantly counting the letters, counting the words, counting the lines, counting the paragraphs, taking great care to make sure that they recorded rightly the law of God as it had been handed down. We thank God for men like this, men like Ezra, who was in fact a scribe. And so we praise God that he chose to use these men to record for us the very Old Testament that we hold today. But the scribes weren't just copyists of the law. They were experts. That's why in Matthew's gospel, his parallel in Matthew 22, he tells us that this man was a lawyer. These men would often stand and help the people, those that sought to obey God and to honor him in their actions, in their everyday life. They would come before these men and they would ask him to adjudicate, to judge, tell us how to apply this life, this law to our life. And now we read how the crowds responded to Jesus' teaching when he compared it to that of the other rabbis, that of the other scribes, back in the beginning of Mark's gospel. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. That's sure to cause some tension. In addition to this, because they saw the law in purely external forms, they were constantly seeking to expand, to put a fence around the law of God. They thought to themselves, if what God has said is we're to honor the Sabbath, they were to rest and worship on the Sabbath, then surely we will please God and we will bless our fellow man if we would just expand those laws a bit, adding our own ordinances, making sure nobody even comes close to sinning in this way. Jesus has already confronted this kind of thinking. He's already told us where it will lead. You'll remember that he said, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. It should be no surprise then that there were scribes there along with the chief priests and the elders that came to confront Jesus as soon as he arrived in the temple on this Holy Tuesday. Now a great number of these scribes, they were also Pharisees. And so right after Jesus astonishes the crowd with his absolutely marvelous answer with regards to the resurrection, we read this in Matthew's gospel. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. So Jesus has blown everyone out of the water. Everyone that comes to him with these questions, as tricky as they may be, he answers with absolute ease and brilliance. And so they gather together now. The Pharisees have already taken their shot. You remember, they're the ones that came and asked Jesus about paying taxes to Caesar. 
And so now they determine they're going to send another of their own, a scribe, to come and ask Jesus this question. Now this is the first time we've seen someone try to trip up Jesus, trying to test him on their own. It was almost always a group. It was almost always a little gaggle of men that was waiting on deck for their turn to attack Jesus. But this man comes alone. So one of the scribes comes up, and hearing them dispute with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, what commandment is the most important of all? So the scribe walks up, and he hears the continued debate. It's a day full of debate, and he recognizes that Jesus is answering well. He's not sweating. He's not calling for help. He's not softening his language. He sees in Jesus a man teaching with absolute authority. And so he asks him this question, which commandment is the most important of all? Now in Matthew's gospel, he says it like this, which commandment is the most important of all? Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Those of you that read in the King James Version, you will find what is the first commandment of all? This isn't a question of numeric order. This wasn't a question of the one that was uttered first. This is a question of weight, of importance. Which commandment is foremost? Now this isn't as uncommon a question as you might think. You see, for the scribes, the rabbis, the religious leaders, they had identified in the Torah 613 commandments. There was 248 positives, do this. There was 365 negatives, don't do that. In addition to this, they further divided the law into the heavier and the lighter commandments. We saw some evidence of this when Jesus, later on in this day in Matthew's gospel, he delivers his curses against these religious leaders. Woe to you. You remember this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you're straining out a gnat while swallowing a camel. You see, the people, they weren't likely to be able to memorize the whole of the law. And so these leaders, they sought to sum it up for the people, to hold before them the most precious, the most important, the weightier and most weighty of the commandments. If you're going to break any other commandments, don't break this. So it was common for them to sit around and debate. What is the greatest commandment? What is the most weighty commandment? That's what he's asking here. Of all the commandments, Jesus, what is that one we must try our best? We must devote our lives to never breaking. Which commandment is the most important of all? Verse 29, Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You know this text well, don't you? As I was reading it, many of you were probably thinking it in your mind. You've memorized it in your Sunday school days. You've heard preachers preach on it time and time again. This would have been doubly so with the Jewish people standing there in that temple court. I imagine some of them were verbally reciting this as Jesus read it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the beginning of the Jewish Shema. Shema is a Hebrew word for hear. All of these Jewish men, they would have learned this prayer as little boys. They would have recited it twice a day, both when they woke up and when they lay down at night. This was one of the ways in which they sought to uphold the commandment that Napoleon read for us just earlier. It comes out of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today, they shall be on your heart. That God was leading his people. He was showing them this is the most critical commandment. And it shall be on your heart. It shall be on your arm. You shall write it on your hands. It shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children. You shall talk about them when you're in your home and when you walk along the path. You shall talk about them when you lay down at night and when you get up in the morning. Dear friends, do you hold the law of God like this? Do you cherish the word of God 
like this. What you'll see in Israel, if you go there to this day, particularly the more orthodox, the more religious areas in Israel, what you'll find is that they hold this to the very letter. You'll find the most orthodox of Jewish men, they've got these little boxes strapped to their arm with leather straps. Perhaps between their head, between their eyes even, they've got these straps around their head with these little boxes. And within those boxes would have been these words written. It took very little of the call to keep these on your hands and on your head. In addition to this, most any building you went into, the hotels that we stayed in, they would have had these plain little white boxes nailed to every door. At first, I didn't know whether they were roach motels or little bitty smoke detectors, but pretty soon I found out they're called mezuzah. These are boxes in which you would find little scrolls, and within these scrolls would be the words of Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 11 written. These men took this law. They took this commandment very, very literally. So when he's asked about the greatest commandment, Jesus, Jesus points the scribe, he points those standing there in the temple court, and he points us to the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Begins with the confession that God is one. As God was preparing his people to enter Canaan under the command of Joshua, he knew that he was sending them into a polytheistic nation. He was sending them in amongst people that had no shortage of gods that they worshiped. And he knew that his people were a nomadic people. They weren't farmers, but they were coming into this lush and fertile ground. And so it was going to be very tempting for these men, whenever the crops didn't grow, whenever the rain didn't come, to look at the natives and say, what do we do to cause the rain to come? And they would have gladly directed them to some of their false gods. And so to prepare their hearts, to protect them from wandering away after these false gods who were not gods, he commanded them, they must understand that the Lord is one. This isn't that God is the greatest God against, amongst many. This isn't that Yahweh is the first and primary God amongst many. This is there is only one God. His name is Yahweh. God is one, absolutely and eternally one. Those of you that were here with us on Wednesday night as we study through the great doctrines of Scripture, you'll recall that we studied the simplicity, the unity of God. That doesn't mean simple isn't easy to understand. That means that there is no division. There is no composition. God is not comprised of parts. God is one. He's one in his essence. He's one in his substance. He's one in his nature. The God who is one is holy and completely unified in himself. Again, the Westminster divines are helpful in this. They write this. There is but one only living and true God who is infinitely infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, all for the sake of his own glory. Dear friends, the God that we worship, he is one. He demands all our thoughts, all our honor, all our worship, all our praise. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It was so important for these people to hear Jesus say these words because the first century church, they were going to be accused of worshiping multiple gods. People were going to ask them, how can you claim to follow Yahweh? How can you claim to follow the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob while at the same time confessing Jesus as your Lord and your God? So it was critical for Jesus in this moment to confirm there is but one God and I am here. It shows just the immensity, the incredible difficulty we have with understanding the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet Jesus is conforming, confirming this for them. And he's telling them that in response to this God who is one, in this response to this God who is completely and wholly unified, there is only one proper response. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This undivided God demands your undivided love. We don't have to separate, separate out the parts for him that we choose to cherish, that we choose to love. Now the commandment to love God, it runs all throughout the book of the law. God was constantly having to draw these people's hearts back to him. He was constantly telling them as they would want to turn and go back to slavery in Egypt, keep loving me and keep walking forward. Dear friends, that's a call for many of you this morning. Love God and keep walking. Don't turn around. We won't do a full survey of all the commandments, but you'll find it written all throughout the law. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart. Take note of all the alls there. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, your heart. In today's day, the heart is synonymous with emotions. To give someone your heart is to love them. But for the Hebrew, it's something different. It was the, the deepest sense, the very essence, the core of what it meant for a man to be a man. This isn't just emotions. It's deep down. It's this root of his thoughts, his deepest desires coming from his heart. Those of you that grew up with the King James Version, you'll remember Proverbs 23, 7 goes like this. As a man thinketh in his heart, so he is. This is more than just pure raw emotion. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. The soul, much like the heart, is the inner essence of who a man is. In Greek, the word is psyche. It can mean soul or it can mean life. It's the root of your desires. It's the thing which causes you to love, to delight in, or to reject all that you love and delight in or reject. So it's your heart, your, your soul, these things that drive you to action. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Jesus added mind. Wasn't in the original Deuteronomy passage, was it? You know what Jesus is saying here is that to love God, to follow God, to cherish God, to delight in God, it's a thing that engages your mind. So many people, they seek to come to God with nothing but empty emotionalism. They come to God just wrapped up in whatever feels right to them. They don't want to think. They don't want to study. They don't want to dig. They don't want to engage their minds. And so what you find then is when it comes down to matters of truth, when it comes to matters of church discipline, when it comes to matters of who we're meant to be as disciples of Jesus Christ, they don't want to go to the word of God. They don't want to engage their minds and think rightly about what he's revealed. They're going to refer to their emotions and what they feel. But he's saying, you can't come to me like this. Dear friends, if what I said to you last week is true, if eternal life is knowing the one true God and his son whom he has sent, then the way that we enjoy eternal life even now is by engaging our minds in this way. Engaging our minds and seeking to know God as he's revealed himself in the scriptures. And for the Jewish people, this even went beyond this. This went to the source of the people's will, to the desires that they had. This is a, this is a conscious and an intentional love. This isn't just well wishes. This isn't just positive emotions. This is knowing deep down in your core that God is there and that God is real. Yes, having a desire and a positive emotion about him, and yet as your mind wanders away, as your heart drifts, consciously and intentionally dragging it back, fighting against yourself to keep all that you have fixed on this God who is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, all your efforts, all your might, all your strength. It's an active love. It's a fight. It is exhausting at times. It's not just sitting back and thinking good thoughts about Jesus. It's not just wishing Jesus well in his mission to save the world. It is an active pursuit. All of your capacity, every ounce of energy that you have devoted to this God. This is the first and greatest commandment because of who he is. Not because of what he's promised to do. Not because of what we hope that he will become. Because of who God is, Yahweh I am, 
who I am. And because of who I am, I am deserving of all your love. I'm deserving of all your being, of all yourself. This isn't components of a man. This is the whole of what it means to be a man. That you're to love God in this way with literally everything you have and everything that you are. All of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, all of the time. This isn't just for a moment. This isn't just for a fleeting instant. This isn't for a season. This isn't for a decade. This is every moment from this until your very last breath and into eternity. You love your God with everything that you have. Do you see how different that is from modern Christianity? And do you see how far short we fall? I have never fulfilled this commandment for one single day in my entire life. Not a minute, not a second. I'm always holding back. My mind is always divided. My heart is always fickle. Not for one moment have I loved God the way that he commands me to love love him with all that I have and all that I am. Dear friends, don't gloss over this. Don't pull away because I sat where you sat and I know the way this works. I stand here and I say, I have never fulfilled this commandment for even one second in my entire life. You sit there and say, me too, bro. I guess we're both human. And then we shrug and walk off. Dear friends, this is a commandment from God uttered from the lips of Jesus Christ. What is it called when you don't uphold a commandment? Sin. The highest and greatest and weightiest commandment that ever was or ever will be, and I have broken it. I continue to break it, to sin against the almighty God, to reject him for who he is, to place myself or my children or my ministry or my money or some of you in a place where only he deserves to be. My own happiness over this. Don't shrug it off. This is sin unadulterated sin, sin which condemns men to hell for all eternity, sin for which your Savior died. It's at this point where the world says, what kind of being is this that you are seeking to worship who demands that you worship, that you praise, that you worship, that you love him? What kind of egomaniac of a God Sentence men to eternity of wrath because they don't love him with all that they have. You people are insane. You can have that God. And dear friends, I would agree with them if God was not the highest and greatest and most majestic being there ever was. And I would perhaps side with them if God's desire for this love was somehow to fulfill a need in himself. But you have to see this. This is the core of Christianity. This is the root of what we seek to do in this place every single Sunday morning. You are built for this. You are literally made to love God the way he's commanding that you love him. Everything that it means to be a man, everything it means to be a human, the purpose for your existence is to love God, to cherish God, to delight in God, to enjoy God like this. And so this commandment, Yes, of course, it's to seek to love God the way that he deserves. It is a true abomination to withhold from God any of the honor, any of the worship, any of the love which only he deserves. But what he's calling us to do here, it's a thing which is meant to bring us ultimate joy and fulfillment. Do you understand this? He's calling you to come and find joy. He's calling you to come and to be satisfied. 
He's not calling you to come meet some need that he has. He's not saying, if you don't love me, no one's going to love me, so please love me. He's saying, you need more than anything else. You're not going to find satisfaction in this world. You're not going to find pure joy and delight and fulfillment anywhere else. So I'm calling you to come to me. What kind of God does that? The God who needs nothing invites sinful men to come to him and says, come to me and be satisfied. I'm commanding you. I'm demanding of you. I'm telling you that the highest essence of the law is that you come to me and be filled. You come to me and find joy. You come to me and find pleasures. <laughs> this is the highest commandment. This is, this is like God saying, look, I'm going to bring before you the most beautiful sunset you've ever seen, and my commandment to you is open your eyes and see it. I'm going to lay before you the most delicious plate of food you could ever imagine. My commandment to you is that you clean your plate. I'm going to give you a beautiful wife that treats you well and loves you with everything that she has. My commandment to you is you hug her with both arms. He's saying engage the whole of yourself in enjoying me. (laughs) That's the highest and greatest commandment. Why would we waste any time with anything else? Why would we hold on to anything else? Why would we settle for anything else? Because we come and we seek to do this and we know how incapable we are. It drives us to worship Jesus all the more, to cry out to him. The song on our lips as we wake up each morning ought to be, Jesus, put to death the sin that ensnares me. Turn my heart. Help me to love you the way that you have called me to love you. But I've got to be honest. Even if I say those words, I don't think I mean them because I'm terrified of the cost. What will my wife, life really look like if I love him like this? What will it cost me to truly follow after God like this? I believe the promise, I do, and I've tasted enough and I've seen enough and I've enjoyed enough pleasures that I know it's real and I know it's true, but I can't want it all out. I can't make myself even want my highest joy. That's how insane I am. Please tell me I'm not alone. The depravity of sin. I can't even want what's greatest. I can't even want what's most pure. God offers me himself. So as I write these words this week, I sit there and I just want to weep for all the joy that I have forfeited. I'm that idiot that goes to a buffet and I fill up on bread. I'm a stupid kid, and you give him the greatest toy ever on Christmas, and I'll play with the box. But at the same time, that sorrow, which it changes to great joy as I recognize that he still loves me, and he still welcomes me, and he still bids me to come. He still meets me in my prayers. He still speaks to me through this word. He still receives my worship. Difference, this is what it means to uphold the first and greatest commandment. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew says the second is like it. Man didn't ask for two commandments, but they're so inextricably linked together. You simply can't separate them. There's no division, and so he's gonna get a twofer. He's going to speak to him about this. And dear friends, you have to know that without the first commandment, the second is meaningless. 
So many men have tried to uphold the second commandment. So many religions all over the world are dedicated to upholding the second commandment. Even non-believers. How many times have you heard non-believers recite the golden rule to you? Do unto others as you would wish have them do unto you. It's part of God's common grace that he's hidden this moral law within the hearts of even the lost. It's good and it's admirable that we seek to love our neighbor, but dear friends, you have to understand that if not driven first and foremost by an all-out love of God, you will always fall short. You've got to understand that the further you drift from the first commandment, the more perverse, the more dishonest, the more twisted your love for man will become. You cannot love man the way God calls you to love man unless you first love him the way he demands that you love him. It simply will not happen. Trying to love men for them, for their sake, for their goodness. Trying to love men for the sake of your own reputation. Trying to love men in your own flesh. This is an affront to God and it always falls apart because man will let you down. Your interests will wander away. Your hearts will be divided. We see so much of this in the world today. These social gospels, these godless gospels, turning Jesus into nothing more than a moral teacher, just telling us to love one another and that that's the whole of the law. That's not it at all. They promise us utopia, but it never comes. It always falls short because man is constantly trying to love his neighbor without first getting right with and truly loving, finding their ultimate satisfaction and joy and pleasure and delight in this God who is one. And it will not work. It will never work. And when you come to understand what it means to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and when you come to understand what the weight of this commandment, dear friends, you'll recognize why it's impossible. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Boy, has this concept been twisted. You will literally hear preachers stand in pulpits and they'll say things like, you see, Jesus is saying you can't love anyone else until you love yourself. You just gotta learn to love yourself, brother. You can't pour from an empty bucket. So you gotta learn to love yourself and then you're gonna learn to love, love your brother. That is trash. That is absolute rubbish. You see, loving God in the flesh, impossible. Loving man the way God commands you to love him in the flesh, impossible. Loving yourself in the flesh, piece of cake. No one ever had to learn to love themselves. Sure, I know about depression. I know about self-loving. Dear friends, that's not a lack of love. That is a twisted, unbalanced, unbiblical self-love. That is a self-centered self-love. Man knows how to love himself. But the problem is he's listened to the lies that have been spoken by pastors, by psychologists, by teachers, by parents all over this world that have told them that they're called to love themselves in a way that God never commanded told that they're to love themselves in ways that are unhealthy, that are unbiblical, and that lead to damnation. Man knows how to love himself. He's pretty stinking good at it. Now, there is a sense at which love for self is an appropriate thing. It's a gift from God. Now, you'll notice that Jesus didn't command us to love ourselves here. It was a given. As you love yourself, because you all love yourself. But there is a sense at which loving yourself is right and appropriate. It's more than emotions. It's more than the way you think about yourself. It's the way that you care for yourself. God's given us those, just that sense that when I'm cold, I cover up. When I'm hungry, I eat. When I'm sick, I seek care. When I'm lonely, I try to make a friend. When I have a need, I pray to God. God gave us this kind of love. When that's broken, we do know something's probably off. 
He's calling us now to love others like this. He says, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Don't miss this. Don't miss how radical this is. As. The key word there is as. Circle as. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. This isn't throwing a poor dude a couple of bucks. This isn't holding the door open for some old lady. Dear friends, if that was the only way you loved yourself, what kind of life would that be? We'd call you crazy. How much time, how much effort, how much energy, how much money have you devoted to caring for yourself? How much time do you spend up staying up at night worrying that your needs aren't going to be met? To love your neighbors, you love yourself, it is an active, it is a thoughtful, it is a pursuing love. It's counting others as more significant than yourselves. Dear friends, you cannot do it. Good luck with it. Good luck with loving yourself in this way. Now, we do it naturally to some degree with our children. God gives us a baby, and immediately our love for that child, our sense of responsibility to love and care for that child, particularly amongst mothers. But if somebody's going to lose sleep, it's her. If somebody's going to get puked on, it's her. If somebody's going to go without food, it's her. As a matter of fact, what you'll find in mothers is this comes so intuitive to them that they are so delighted to be able to love on this person outside of themselves as they love themselves that oftentimes you have to have friends come over and say, look, I'm sitting with the baby for a minute. You take a shower and get a cup of coffee. Dear friends, we're to love our neighbors like that. You can't do that in the flesh. and You can't do that without first loving God. And the commandment, the connection between these commandments, it's clear. Not only does Jesus talk about it, Paul talks about it, Peter talks about it, James talks about it, John talks about it in his letters. 1 John 4, 20 through 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother who he can see cannot love God who he has not seen. Our love for our neighbors, it is evidence of our love for God. It flows from, it finds its source in our love for God, but it cannot replace it and it cannot come first. You don't get to skip step one and go to step two. You will always fail. And you will always put men in places where only God belongs. You will find yourself at times coming in this effort to love men, you'll find yourselves having to determine, do I speak the truth of God in love or do I lie to you because I want your love? Will I obey and honor God or will I fear man? You cannot skip over step one. First one must be primary, but from that flows this love. The self-giving, the self-sacrificing, this all-in love for your neighbor. Who is your neighbor? Jesus made that clear. Everyone. Not just the pretty. Not just the precious. Not just the easy to love. But here's where your mind goes. Here's where my mind goes. I immediately think about the rich young ruler. You remember that he came to the right man with the right posture and the right question. He comes to Jesus kneeling in the dirt and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus speaks to the man about the law. And the poor sap, he thinks he's doing pretty good. Yes, I've done all these things. Jesus looks at the man with love and compassion, and he says, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Jesus was calling the man to love God with all he had, and from that place to love his neighbor as he loved himself. But the man went away sad because he had much. He was not willing to pay the cost. Now, you remember what happened, Matthew records for us, that the other disciples, they were beginning to wonder themselves. They talked about the impossibility of a man coming to salvation apart from some supernatural work of God. You recall then that Peter spoke up on behalf of the disciples, and he said, 
Jesus, we have given all things to follow you. Do you remember what he said next? What then will be left for us? That's the question. That's the fear. That's the anxiety. Dear God, if I love you the way that you tell me to love you, and then from that place of love, I love others with a sacrificial love. If I love others the way that I love myself, what then will be left for me? That's what keeps people on the fringes. That's what keeps people from going on in. That's what keeps people at the gate to the kingdom of God. This is why you cannot separate the first commandment from the second. It's why you cannot seek to love your neighbor the way God calls you to love your neighbor without first fully and wholly giving yourself to God in love and then finding the ultimate satisfaction that's found there. You can't do it. I need you to stay with me. This isn't just preacher talk. This is eternal truth. That as you come to God like this, as you devote yourself to loving him with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your will, with all your everything, with everything that you have, and that you find his promises to be true, as you find the words of Christ to come true, as you come to him like this, giving all of yourself to him, you find that whoever comes shall never hunger, whoever believes shall never thirst. You find that in his presence is a fullness of joy, that his right hand are pleasures forevermore, that he satisfies the longing soul, that he fills, with, fills you with all good things. As you come to God and you find in him an unending fountain of pure joy. And then from that place, you, sense, you seek to do for others. You seek to love others the way you love yourself. You start to recognize that the truest sense of loving yourself is giving yourself in love to God in this way. That the ultimate self-care, the ultimate self-help, the ultimate act of caring and loving for yourself is loving God in an all-out fashion like this. It's no longer settling for baloney. It's reaching for caviar, saying, I want the thing that I was made for. Then everything else seems to get real dull real quick. It's not that you don't enjoy a steak. It's not that you don't take a vacation with your family. It's that those take on a whole new meaning. They become acts of worship. They become acts of just pure, unadulterated worship as you praise God for the gifts that he's given you. And you don't fight for them anymore. You don't scratch and claw for them anymore. You just see those as a means to the end. Every dollar, every resource, every talent, every ounce of energy you have, you're constantly asking, how can I trade this for more real joy, for more pure joy, for more real satisfaction? And then nothing's off limits. And then you begin to look around you. You don't have to worry about the things that you've lost anymore because he continues to provide because you recognize that this one that you've given yourself to, he has endless supply. You're never giving to him something that wasn't his in the first place. And then you turn to your brothers and to your sisters and you can't help then but to treat them the way that you would desire to be treated, recognizing that the ultimate gift you can give them is to show them the same sense of love. That yes, you give them a dollar. Yes, you give them a blanket. But ultimately, you know that the dollar and the blanket will fade, but Jesus Christ remains forever. And so you see, that is a tool to get them more pure joy. And you know this. There's more joy for you in this process. Who wants to go to the Grand Canyon by themselves? Nobody. You want to stand there with another and say, look, look at this. Your joy increases as others come to love God in this way. Christianity is the most self-serving religion you could imagine. If we would just stop settling for junk and rubbish and trash, stop settling for the lies that this world feeds you about the, the joys in this world. You come to Jesus and you're so enraptured with joy. Your soul is so filled with delight in who he is. It just overflows on everyone around you. This is the most important. Hear, O Lord, excuse me, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Matthew says, 
on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The law, the prophets, God's will, God's promises, God's providential plan for this creation revealed in this. The whole of the law, it hangs, it hinges upon love for God driven to love for your neighbor. That's it. So it's the weight of all the other commandments is borne up by these. To have no other God before him, to make no idols, to honor his name, to remember the Sabbath, to honor your father and your mother, to not cheat, to not murder, to not steal, to not lie, to not covet. All of these find their source, their root, these pegs on which they hang in love for God and love for neighbor. They'd all depend on that. As Augustine said, love and do as you like. I'm getting that tattooed. Love and do as you like. When you come to recognize the depth of what it means to truly love yourself and to enjoy pleasures in this life, you aren't all bound up any longer. You're not all bound up in a bunch of rules and a bunch of regulations. You aren't watching every step, worried you're gonna step in some type of hole. The things just flow from you. If I love Amanda as I love myself, adultery isn't even a thing, but neither is lust. You see, not only will I keep my hands to myself, not only will I keep my eyes to myself, not only will I watch my thoughts, but the fight for purity and intimacy, it becomes joy, not a burden. I'm fighting for that which I delight in. And if I love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength, I wouldn't dream of not gathering together with you people on the Lord's day. I wouldn't take his name in vain, but I'll go beyond this. I will fight. I will fight my flesh. I will fight my sin. I will fight this world. I will fight any temptation which withhold, that withholds me from that greatest joy. I'm like a dog after a bone. I want that. I've tasted and I've seen that. And anything that holds me back from that, I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to fight it. Again, this isn't just trying to not step in a hole. This isn't avoiding mud pedals. It's pure joy. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's an all-out pursuit of that which is so much more. I'm not just trying to not step in sin. I'm chasing hard after a prize. Do you understand this? God isn't telling you to be a good boy. He's saying be a man and chase after something worth chasing after. Be a man and charge after a prize that'll last. Put on your big boy pants and be a man. Stop settling for rubbish. Guys. pleasures that he has stored up for us, the rewards, the delights, you will not trade an ounce of anything in this world and wish you had it back. The whole law, the whole prophets, everything going back thousands of years, it all hung on this. Jesus is saying, look, this is what God was trying to show you all along. This was the offer to Israel as well. They offered the Old Testament saints. This is what they held fast to. They looked forward to Jesus Christ, his crucifixion, his overcoming their slavery to sin and to death, to the grave and to Satan. He said, this has always been the offer. This has always been the picture. Come to me and be satisfied. This doesn't absolve us from the law. It elevates it. It holds it on a pedestal. It puts it in its rightful place. Because we see that as we walk down this path, as we uphold the law, we find more joy. We find more of what we're built to enjoy. This doesn't diminish the law. It shows us its deepest root, its ultimate purpose, and the fulfillment. 
Jesus would go on to say, back in Matthew 7, 12, as he delivers to us the golden rule, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and prophets. Paul similarly says in Romans 13, 8, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. This is the source and the fulfillment. I told you before, Christianity is a, is a religion for dummies. There's only one answer. You wake up every day and say, I want to give all of myself to Jesus Christ. I want to trust all of myself to him. When you do that, you see the source of the law. When you do that, you fulfill the law. All your answers are found in one place. You don't have to wake up today and go, okay, what does Christianity demand of me today? Will there be choices you have to make? Of course. What do I keep? What do I give away? What is he providing for me with? What is he providing for me with? And I need to hold on to this? And what are you calling me to let loose of? But there's not multiple answers. It's all the same. Verse 32, and the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. I bet the other Pharisees were apoplectic. This man just agreed with Jesus. And it reminds us that we can't just lump all these religious leaders into one category. There were some that were good and faithful. Nicodemus was a Pharisee that came to Jesus with a sincere question. In the end, he would go on to be a faithful disciple. He would join together with another member of the council, a man named Joseph of Arimathea, to take care of Jesus' body. So we're reminded that while this man may have come to Jesus with dishonest motives, ultimately, he recognized the truth in Jesus' response. You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. Verse 33, and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. These, this man, he has no clue that in three short days, Jesus would be fulfilling and abrogating all the sacrifices, all the ceremonial laws. He does rightly know, though, as a scribe, having surely written down all the words of the prophets, he knows that over and over again, God was making clear that to come to me and offer these external sacrifices, these outward ordinances, they are nothing without a heart of love and faith. Hosea 6.6, 6, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This expert in the law, he spoke more truth than he could ever possibly know. Verse 34, and when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. This man affirmed that Jesus had answered rightly. See, he sought to judge Jesus according, like he thought he was giving Jesus an attaboy. Good for you, Jesus. He had no idea that he was the one on trial. That the only rightful judge of the universe was the one that was standing before him. And he tells him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And this surely caught this man off guard. Jesus wasn't speaking positively of these scribes. In fact, he's going to speak woes over the scribes, curses over the scribes before this day is over. And yet for this particular man, this surely had to catch this scribe off guard. In addition to that, he's talking about the kingdom of God now. We're talking about the law. But here's the king. And wherever the king is, the kingdom is near. And he's saying, I've come to usher in the kingdom of God, to inaugurate the kingdom of God. And so he tells the man, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And we discussed this with the rich young ruler. That guy was almost saved. Do you know what it means to be almost saved? Utterly condemned. Do you know what it means to be not far from the kingdom of God? Completely lost. There is no such thing as half salvation. There is no such thing as almost end. But what Jesus is saying here is not a negative thing. He's speaking positively. He's telling the man, you're thinking rightly. You're on the right course. You're tracking correctly. 
I have to imagine this is much like the author of Hebrews, all throughout the book of Hebrews. Paul, who I believe to be the author, he's continually telling the Hebrew people, keep coming. Don't stop. You're tracking with me. You see who Jesus is. You want your heart to trust who Jesus is, but don't stop and turn back. Don't go back to the old ways. Don't go back to the old sacrifices. Don't go back to the old ordinances. Keep coming. And that's what Jesus is telling this man. He's saying the kingdom is here because the king is standing before you and you're on the right path. You're on the right track. You're thinking correctly. You understand that love is the root, the source, the fulfillment of all this and I'm pleading with you. Keep coming. Dear friends, that's gotta be some of you. You're near the kingdom of God. You're almost saved and then you feel the weight of it. You realize what it's going to actually cost you. You recognize what you're going to have to give up. You get terrified and you turn back. Dear friends, I'm pleading with you today. Keep coming. I'm asking you to find pure joy. I'm asking you to be fulfilled. I'm asking you to find real and lasting satisfaction in the only place that you will ever find. I'm asking you to keep coming. I'm asking you to not stop Dear friends, there are many that are going to continue down this path. They're going to go for a season, for a day, for a moment, for a year, for a decade, and they're going to turn away in the end and be lost as lost can be. Dear friends, I'm pleading with you, keep coming. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for the precious law that you have provided. We thank you that in that law we see you We see your holy and perfect nature. We thank you that we see our sin. We rightly classify it for what it is. And we thank you from that point, Father, that we see our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the only hope. Father, help us to think rightly about your law. Help us to embrace and to love it. Father God, help us to chase hard after you. From that place, would we be driven to pure and true and spiritual worship? We seek to worship you now, Father, to receive all glory and all honor and all praise. For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.